In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are annual resolution makers. You know who you are, right? <laughs> Every year you've got that regular habit of like, okay, where's my list? What are the resolutions I am going to be making this year? How can I recommit myself to the ones from last year? Now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, some of you, the moment you hear New Year's resolution, <laughs> you uh, roll your eyes or vomit a little bit in your mouth or something. I don't know. You just don't, you despise it. You don't, it's just, you think it's like the most ridiculous thing ever. And probably the majority of us are somewhere in between, right? Vacillating back and forth between those two extremes, <laughs> depending on how the, the current year went, how our December went, how we're feeling. We say, well, you know. Should I make a resolution or not? How much did I eat in December? Oh, I need to make a resolution. Diet and exercise, right? Those popular ones. Wherever you, whatever your feelings are about New Year's resolutions, think for a minute about the word itself. Resolution. Think about that word. A resolution is a product of resolve, isn't it? It's a product of resolve. And to resolve means to decide firmly on a course of action. Whether it's at the beginning of a new year or sometime in the middle or any time throughout, I would hope that every follower of Jesus Christ would decide firmly on a course of action in his or her life. They would decide firmly and regularly deciding on a firm course of action, specifically to glorify God, to honor God at all times and in every way according to the revealed word of God. Isn't that what being a disciple of Jesus means? To decide upon God's way and not my way? To decide on and commit ourselves to what he has revealed in his word, that pathway? Resolution resolve as we step into 2022 are you resolute in regard to christ's course of action ask yourself that if you are i would love to have you consider with me this morning a course of action to which god is calling us this very morning we find that course of action spelled out in a verse from our Bible reading plan from last week, it's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. If you've got your Bible, your Bible app, if you're online with us, open a new tab up, navigate over to a Bible website, and pull up Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Galatians 6, 2. Let's look at that verse together. So the Apostle Paul writes here, to fellow believers. Real quickly, I'll just mention, these are most likely converts from his first missionary journey. His first missionary journey. So these would be places like Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch. These are places in what today is central, south central Turkey, the country of Turkey. So we believe that's this is called the Southern Galatian hypothesis, right? That this is what he's done. And you can find out more about that trip in Acts 13 and 14. We, we, we went through there in our Bible reading plan, didn't we? 
We even had, we even had a message on that back in whenever that was, uh, November. So I want to encourage you that the, I want to remind you that these are probably younger believers in faith, younger Christians. Uh, they're, they're still learning the ropes. They're still figuring out what it means to know, know God through Christ. So he's writing this to a collection of churches, like I mentioned in some of those towns. And this is what he writes in verse two of chapter six. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, take just a moment and consider how that verse lands, how it lands in your own heart. Did you hear it? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Think about how it lands in your, in your life in regard to your own thoughts, your own experiences, your own practice, your own needs, maybe your own fears. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. As is always the case, we know this. We need to make sure we understand what Paul is saying here. And we want to do that by considering this verse in its context, right? That's what we want to do. So let's do this. Let's use three words. I'm going to draw out three words from this verse. And we're going to use those three words as a, as stepping off points for exploring the larger context here of Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. So first think with me about the word law. The word law. For anyone reading Galatians from start to finish, the word law here in verse 2 would set off alarm bells. It should set off alarm bells. Why is that? Because the whole letter up to this point has been focused on the danger of Christians submitting themselves to the Mosaic, the law given through Moses, the Old Testament law. Yeah, the don't eat pork law. That's the one, right? That's the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments. But we've got a whole host of other ritualistic uh, ritualistic laws, regulations to, for sacrifice and dietary restrictions. There were certain jurisprudence kinds of laws, right, about how you judge in certain cases. Uh, if this happens, then you do this. So all of that from the Old Testament, these Christians were submitting to that law in order to supposedly gain a firm footing of righteousness before God. A firmer footing of righteousness. Oh, I've got Jesus? Oh, maybe I can just... Add on top of that. That way I feel even more secure before God. I'll start doing these things in this law. You see, it seems that certain Jewish Christian teachers, and we put that in air quotes, right? Certain Jewish Christian teachers, they were professing Jewish Christians at the very least. These teachers had come into these churches and they were teaching these young believers, these new disciples, newer, newer or newish disciples, something like this. They were saying, if you want to be a true Christian, you must first become a true Jew. 
That seemed to be the kind of thinking. And that means being circumcised is what these teachers were prescribing. You'll remember circumcision goes all the way back into the very first book of the Bible, into Genesis, where circumcision was a practice given to Abraham. And that practice was given so that Abraham's descendants would be marked off, literally, physically distinct from all the people around them, right? So the male children, the male adults would bear that mark and they would know they were separate. That was one of the object lessons of the Old Testament that God was trying to teach the people about being a distinct, a set-apart kind of people. Now, so what's wrong with this kind of thinking, right? What's wrong with this kind of thinking? Does this mean that every circumcised uh, person in the male in the world today is like in violation uh, of God's law that it somehow is off track? No, no, no. It's not the it's not the ritual itself. It's not the practice itself. It was the mindset under which to which these believers were beginning to subscribe. They were coming under the law. This is what's wrong. Paul sums up the danger in the last chapter. So flip back to chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Maybe on the same page for you. This is what Paul, this is how he sums up the danger of this teaching at the beginning there of that previous chapter. He says, look, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That should stop you in your tracks when you hear that. Right? If you accept circumcision, Jesus Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does he mean? Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Here's the explanation. That he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Now, wait a minute. What is he saying? He's not saying you are, you are severed from Christ. He's saying you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. If that's your mentality, if you wholeheartedly have, have, have gravitated, guess what? Christ is of no advantage to you. You basically cut yourself off from the blessing of the gospel. Why? Because now you've made it about what you can do and must do rather than what Christ has done. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We want to make sure we understand that verse in its context. Doesn't mean somehow they had lost their salvation. He said, he's telling them, you know, you, what you believe and what you understand. If you, if you're going this way, you, under, you need to know what that means. It means you're rejecting the grace of God and somehow grabbing onto what you can do, your efforts, your merits. This is why he tells them in verse uh, 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 verse, is it verse one of chapter five? Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. <laughs> Do not submit again. Don't you see what you're doing? And I love it in chapter four, chapters three and four, but chapter four, especially remember this was a mixed church. It had, it had Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So the Jewish believers would have understood Paul's arguments about the law and where they had come from in terms of their traditions and their beliefs, practices in Judaism. But he also mentions to the 
Gentile, the pagan believers, he said, don't you know you had the same kind of thing when you worshipped Aphrodite, when you worshipped Zeus, when you worshipped at the temple of Apollo? You had the same kind of thing. It was a works-based system by which you tried to earn favor before the deity, right? By going and doing all of these things. Don't you see you're putting yourself back under that yoke of slavery? It's this legalistic mindset that shapes the very thing Paul is arguing against here in chapter 6, verse 2. Look back at our main passage, verse 2, of chapter 6, and think about the mindset that Paul is trying to correct or guard against with, with this command. When he calls them to bear one another's burdens... What is he trying to correct or guard against in the church? Well, we discover the answer to that question in the next verses. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6. Look at those. Galatians 6, 3 through 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So instead of bearing each other's burdens, Paul has gotten word or at least believes there's the possibility that many in this church are being tempted, were being tempted to judge each other's burdens instead of bearing one another's burdens. So if you brought a burden, I might judge you, be more inclined to judge you than to help you. And in so doing this, judging others, they were elevating themselves. Look how much more, look how much more righteous I am than you. Look how better I am before God because I have kept these regulations of the law of Moses. I am walking in obedience to the law. This is why Paul calls them to test their own faith and practice rather than inspecting others with a prideful attitude. Uh, just look at chapter 5 again. As chapter 5 revealed leading up to our verse this morning, many in the Galatian churches were, chapter 5 verse 15, they were biting and devouring one another. Chapter 5, verse 20, it seems like things like like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy, these seem to have been prevalent in the church or gaining ground in the church, right? People were becoming more and more like this, which is exactly what legalism does. Thus, it's not surprising in chapter 5, verse 26, That Paul ends that chapter by saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, that leads to a second word that I want to draw out from verse 2 of chapter 6. And that is the word burdens. Burdens. What does Paul mean by that word when he calls them to bear one another's burdens? Well, notice the context. Again, we're using the context, aren't we? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. This is going to help us understand the word burdens. 
it says this, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Clearly, what Paul has in mind when he talks about burdens here are the struggles of fellow believers, specifically their struggles with sin. If anyone is caught, it's a really weird word in Greek here. It literally means like to go before, beforehand. So I think the best translation is overtaken. When another brother or sister is overtaken by sin, right? Sin gets up in front of them, right? When they're overtaken by sin, you should restore that believer in a spirit of gentleness. You see, verse 1 then helps us better understand verses 3 through 5, like we just talked about, where that pride, anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Verse 1 helps us understand this. Instead of restoring these struggling, wayward brothers and sisters, some were simply standing on the edge, uh, standing, trying to stand above these believers, condemning them because of their sin. Why can't such and such get it together? Wow, what a shame that person's still struggling in that way. Well, she hasn't improved very much, it seems. They were standing on the side. They were using the law of Moses to reject others in the church rather than encourage them and guide them. You see, the law of God has wonderful things for us when used rightly, when used properly. When you understand it as a part of the whole. That's not how these believers were using the law, were they? They were using it to reject others. This is why Paul warned them to guard their own hearts in such situations. Look at verse 1 again. Restore this brother or sister in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be tempted. When you see a believer struggling, how easy it is to be tempted to look down on that person rather than wanting to lift up that person. How easy it is to think greatly of yourself rather than being concerned with how poorly that brother or sister is doing. Notice how Paul points them back to Christ in Galatians 6.2. It's that focus that brings us to a final word. We talked about the word law. That was a good stepping off point. The word burdens. Now think about the word bear. B-E-A-R. Bear. I think most of us recognize that the word bear in verse 2. Has that sense of helping someone else to shoulder a heavy weight. Right? And since we're not talking about a literal burden. The Galatians weren't. Paul wasn't like. Man, you guys have these really heavy grains of, of, of uh, the sacks of grain and, and these millstones that you're trying to move for this church fundraiser. You need to help each other bury, bury each other's burdens. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about, right? It's not a literal weight. What exactly, though, does Paul have in mind in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2? I believe that question brings us right back to the very first word we consider from Galatians 6, 2, the word law. So bear brings us back to law. When Paul mentions the law in verse 2, he's not talking about the law of Moses per se. Even though he's working from this focus and emphasis on the law, they're talking all about the law in the Galatian churches. But Paul says, listen, 
You can talk all about the law of Moses. I want to talk to you about the law of Christ. What does he mean by that? The law of Christ. Well, look at this. He says, if we bear one another's burdens in chapter 6, verse 2, we are actually fulfilling the law of Christ. What is this law of Christ? Well, I believe, again, using the context that Paul explained this in the previous chapter, in a passage that also talks about fulfilling and law. Just like we see here. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Scan back to those, if you would. Chapter chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom, your freedom in Christ, as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. There it is, right? What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is the essence of God's law that Jesus taught, you probably will recall, that when he was asked about the greatest commandment, for example, Mark 12, Matthew 22, when you go back to those passages and Jesus taught about the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he added that second one in there. And the second is like this. To love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. So he's drawn out these Old Testament verses. He's brought them. He said, the whole law is fulfilled in this one statement, this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, and we know, let me add a little bonus into that. We know that when Jesus was speaking about love in that way... That's why he said, a new commandment I give you in John chapter 13. It's the same commandment before, love your neighbor as yourself. But guess what? There's a new context because there's this new thing called the church. This new faith family in Christ. A new commandment I give to you that you should love one another just as I have loved you. So you are love one another. You see, all of this points us right back to Christ. Paul knew this. Paul knew that the Galatians knew this. This is the law of Christ. Paul actually drives home the importance of this idea of love earlier in chapter 5. Listen to this profound statement from verse 6 of chapter 5. Look at this. If you want to understand Galatians, just read this one verse. And this is the whole book in a nutshell right here. The whole argument. Galatians. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Only faith expressing itself through love. That's the whole correction right there. Right? If you want to glory in circumcision, if you want to glory in your uncircumcision, you're fighting one another. These dissensions are taking root in the church. You're missing the whole point of the law of Christ which is to love one another to the glory of God. So bearing each other's burdens, here it is, brothers and sisters, bearing each other's burdens means serving one another in love. And specifically in this passage, it means, chapter 6, verse 1, serving a brother or sister by restoring a struggling sinner in a spirit of gentleness 
not judgment. When we see others struggling, are we inclined to come alongside of them or to set ourselves apart from them? To give a shoulder or to point a finger? What are we inclined to do? This is what the Word of God is asking us this morning. Uh, to come alongside a struggling sinner in a spirit of gentleness, to restore them, to shoulder that burden. That is the spiritual response, as chapter 6, verse 1 talks about. That is the spiritual response. Now, that doesn't mean like spiritual, like Deepak Chopra, Oprah, spiritual, right? That's not like the modern day kind of spiritual, like that word is like really... Everybody's using it like, oh, I just want to be spiritual in the new year and get my spiritual life in order. No, 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 no. No, in the context here, we're coming right out of chapter 5 where there are so many mentions of the Holy Spirit, you can't get away from it. So really spiritual here really means of the Spirit. Those of you who want to be of the Spirit, the response that's of the Spirit. It fits perfectly, like I said, with the emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the last chapter, chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul talks about what? He talks about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. It's just overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That's why in 6.1 says, if you want to be of the Spirit, guess what? This is what, this is how you live. Therefore, if the fruit as Paul uses that word, means manifestation. If the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in you as a believer and through you as a disciple of Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. If that's what it looks like, then of course, when a brother or sister is struggling, you will patiently restore that struggling sinner in gentleness, which again is a fulfillment of the law of Christ, the law of love. Do you see how all this fits together? The emphasis that Paul is bringing. So let me try to summarize it this way. Take a look on the screen. This is what God's word is to us this morning. A simple statement to try to summarize this. It's there somewhere. I see it. I see it. There it is, Kedrick. Here it comes. To bear one another's burdens as followers of Christ means helping in love to shoulder the weight of any struggle that might hinder a brother or sister's personal faith and possibly the faithfulness of the church. That's God's word to us this morning. Galatians 6.2, brothers and sisters, provides us with a course of action, doesn't it? It's just one verse. You know, if you know me, I love to tackle like 15 verses on a Sunday morning. You know, I'm all about that. Like, oh, like 15 verses. Are you ready? You're going to drink from the fire hose this morning. No, it's just one verse. It's just one verse. But it's so clear. Because it's one verse, it's so clear. The course of action The question before us, the question before you is, are we, are you resolute? Are you resolute, brother, sister? Are you resolute? 
to honor God, to glorify God by bearing one another's burdens. Three months ago, we relaunched Way of Grace with a vision to simply be the church. To do less better by emphasizing what matters most. To do less better by emphasizing what matters most. To commit ourselves on Sunday mornings to both shared worship and life groups. And I believe God has been blessing those efforts. As the Spirit of God has worked through those efforts, I've witnessed the very thing that we're talking about this morning. Burden-bearing. Co-burden-bearing. Right? I've been seeing that. Wonderfully, I've been seeing that. But as we begin a new year, it's so important that we recommit ourselves to that. That we remind ourselves of what it means to be the church. It's very easy. It is very easy for us as believers to get excited about something. And then it slowly starts to kind of wind down. And we're like, well, well, where's the coffee bar at church though? And when's the next spiritual retreat? And when's, and we start coming up with the programs and trying to think like, why don't we have this and this and this and this and this? And guess what? We lose sight of what matters most, of loving one another, of helping one another. And you might say to yourself, well, uh, maybe everybody's doing okay and there's not burdens to be bearing for one another. Oh, you guys kill me. You're so, you're so funny. You're so funny. You know as well as I do, all of us are struggling. Right? All of us are struggling in different ways. Let's talk about how we live this out, how we commit ourselves to this, some practical steps forward as way of grace, as our, as a faith family. Take a look at a first word here. First, we need to ask God for a spirit-empowered sensitivity to one another, right? No, I'm not talking about, you know, I know, I know many of you out there are like, this, this culture's too sensitive nowadays, right? We've got to slap some people around and get them straight here, a bunch of wallflowers. No, 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 no. All I mean is we need to open our hearts more to one another. That sensitivity, uh, listening to the Spirit of God, how He wants us to work in each other's lives. The goal is to be attentive to one another's needs, isn't it? To be watchful as we get to know one another better, to better sense when a brother or sister is struggling, and to cultivate a climate in our fellowship here where people can talk about their burdens. Is that your prayer as you gather with the people of God on Sunday morning? When you pull up in the parking lot out there, is that your prayer before you step out of the car? Father, help me, help me to be listening and attentive to my brothers and sisters that I might love them well like Jesus, that I might hear their heart, that I might be looking for those clues, that I might be bold enough to ask a question, how are you really doing? That I might be willing to give of my time to listen and sit with and pray with a brother or sister. Is that your prayer when you arrive? How might you work for change where you see impediments to this among us or in us? It's very easy to criticize, step away from the church and say, oh, this church is not very loving. This church is not very loving. This church does not want to listen to me. This church doesn't care about my problems. This church is so closed off. And yet, 
What are those pointing the fingers doing to help the church grow other than just pointing fingers? You see, we all have a part to play in this. We need sensitivity from God's spirit, that heart towards one another. Second, by God's grace, we need to make sure that we are in proximity to one another. We cannot help shoulder a burden from 100 feet away. That's not how it works. Hey, I see you over there. I'm going to help you out. Ready? Yeah, I'm going to help you with that couch you're trying to move. No, from over here I'm going to do it. Yeah, like, yeah. What do you mean it's not going to work? Doesn't You can't do that that way. To help shoulder the load and shoulder the weight, you need to be next to somebody. You need to be with somebody. We cannot help shoulder a burden. We cannot receive help with our own burden if we are not with one another in some kind of meaningful way. It just doesn't happen. Can this happen within a life group? Absolutely. That's why we've come up with that design. Can the life group uh, help us nurture the kind of familiarity that leads to this co-burden bearing that we're talking about? Absolutely. You may not be pouring out your heart about your burden in the life group, but you can make a connection with somebody where you later are able to share how you're doing, how you're, the way you're struggling. That's part of what we're trying to do. That's what we want, how we want God to be working among us in this way. If before or after our shared worship or in a life group, you sense someone is struggling, then I ask you this, believer, why not pursue proximity? Why not pursue proximity? God would be glorified if we did. Invite a brother or sister out for coffee. Ask a good question. Plan a phone call. Send a note. Finally, third, number three, we need to walk with one another in gospel-inspired humility. Right? We heard enough. We heard all this. this. There's a lot of ink in this letter. In chapter six, they're devoted to guard Paul addressing the kind of pride to which legalism tempts us. Right? Legalism breeds pride. We see that all the time throughout history. In contrast, the gospel, the good news about Jesus should inspire humility in us. I mean, just stop and think about it. Though we deserved the condemnation of hell, through Jesus, we are freely offered the love of heaven. How can you be prideful in light of that? How can you be prideful when you hear that powerful, that precious truth? And we do nothing to achieve any of this except trusting that Jesus did it all. That's it. Again, we don't bring anything to the equation except the sins for which we need forgiveness. That's what we bring. As we have been loved so well, fellow Christian, we should love well. Do you agree with that? As we have been loved well, we should love well. Again, all of us can be tempted to look down on someone who is struggling rather than seeking to lift them up. We can roll our eyes. We can label their drama. We minimize their hurts. We deem certain burdens not worth our time. Or we write people off as unhelpable. But praise God that we don't receive that kind of response from Jesus. We receive quite the opposite, don't we? Open arms, 
grace, even as we heard from Hebrews, sympathy for struggling sinners because he knows what we go through. How beautiful, how humbling to know this truth. This should humble us. And that gospel-inspired humility then informs our sensitivity. And that sensitivity motivates us to pursue proximity. And as we help shoulder the weight of another of another's struggle, as we help them and we do that through our presence, through our prayers, through our counsel and confidence, we are trusting God for the strength and the wisdom we need to truly be a blessing to that brother or sister. It can be scary to step out and say, I'm going to shoulder this burden with you. But it's an act of faith, isn't it? We recognize, God, I can't do this. And God says, yeah, you're right. Exactly. You can't do it. Rely on me. Rely on me to give you the strength to lend strength to that brother or sister who's weak. What a beautiful exercise in growth and faith as God calls us to respond in this way. For the strength and the wisdom that we need, he will bless us. That's a prayer he loves to answer. He loves to answer that. Sometimes burden bearing simply means a willingness to listen to someone who's struggling. Whatever you have in your mind about being, uh, bearing somebody's burden, we need to be reminded. Sometimes it just means providing that listening ear to someone to help them bear that burden. Allow me to share a final thought, brothers and sisters. Uh, God's blessed us with a beautiful passage this morning, a call. Uh, uh, we call it a one-body call to us to focus in on our relationship to other brothers and sisters, the healthiness of our church. But I also want you to notice what Paul said in chapter 6, verse 5. Go back to that verse. He says something very unusual here in a passage where he just called his readers to bear one another's burdens. <laughs> you read 6, 5, and you're like, wait, what? Like, what are you saying exactly here? <laughs> You just called us to bear one another's burdens, but you say in verse six, chapter 6, verse 5, Paul, each one will have to bear his own load. What does that mean? It means this. It means that the struggling brother or sister that we are often tempted to judge is not accountable to us. They're not accountable to you. Don't lord over them. They don't have to answer to you, but they and you are accountable to God. You're accountable to God, accountable for how you respond to that brother or sister who is weighed down by the burden of sin and suffering. You are accountable for how you respond to them. The very righteousness that you seek to throw and use against another is the very thing that you will be judged by. That attitude, you will have to give an account before God for that attitude. There will be no finger pointing when we stand before Jesus for each one will have to bear his own load. You see how those two fit together? Brothers and sisters, way of grace, may God sober us in light of that accountability. And I mentioned that to you with a little bit of a caveat. I want to clarify that to you. Some Christians believe that because we have been 
forgiven and there's atonement for our sins and we are reconciled to God that we will not have to stand before the throne of God. That is not true. That is simply not true. Read Romans 14. It's extensive about how we will all have to give an account before God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the same judgment, right? Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. You can just go on and on and on. We will stand before Christ. We will give an account for what we've done in this body, in this life, with what we've been given in light of His grace. And we will have to face the truth about our actions. But our hope, our comfort, our assurance is that in the end, we know that all of our failures, they will, they will be covered by the blood of Jesus. That doesn't give us a blank check. That's not a license for us to do whatever we want, sin as much as we want, right? Put it on spiritual cruise control. No. You see, the truth inspires us. Because we say, when I stand before Jesus, I want to hear those words from my Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's my joy, right? That's my joy. That's what I want to hear before Him. And so this accountability sobers us. But at the same time, the love of Christ inspires us. We're sober by the reality of accountability. And we're inspired by the reality of love from Jesus. That both are at work in us. And may the result be that we love one another as Christ has loved us. So that we might bless one another. And even draw in those from out there who are being crushed all around us every day by this world. By sin and suffering they are being crushed. And they need someone to come alongside of them. And help bear their burdens. Not only sin and suffering, but their separation from God is crushing them and weighing on them. For our faith, we know, is not in ourselves, but our faith is in Him who bore our sins in His body on the tree. He bore for us our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. Hold on to that verse. So powerful. So beautiful. What a reminder. That as Christ has come. And borne our ultimate burden. We can then. Inspired. Come alongside one another. To love one another. By bearing each other's burdens. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask God for help to do this very thing, for this to be lived out in our midst.